Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse number 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, and let me say this, you might be thinking, well, we've covered two churches so far, and there are some things that he didn't mention. Well, we will touch upon some of these things later. One of the things we'll touch upon today that was found in the church of Ephesus with, with the Nicolaitans And then we will draw some of this to a conclusion as we get to know these churches and consider some of the things that were said to them by Jesus. Verse number 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. We have been considering the churches here in the book of Revelation, to which the book of Revelation was written to, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, Seven literal churches in Asia that existed in the first century. And so we considered the loveless church with the church in Ephesus in the first part of this uh, chapter. We considered the persecuted church, the church in Smyrna. And then, of course, we understand as we continue to go through... Uh, these messages of these seven churches, that there are all kinds of different churches. And historically, there have been all kinds of different churches, just as there are all kinds of different churches today, even though there is but one church, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we see that there was the loveless church, the persecuted church, and now we are going to consider the compromising church, the church in Pergamos. So let's jump right in because we have a lot of ground to cover here this morning. Notice in verse number 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, uh, write, 
These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, throughout this revelation to the churches, we, at each stage, learn something about Christ. In, in, in chapter 1, as he is beginning the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, we learn this in verse 8. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this is repeated at various times throughout the book of Revelation. So I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we learn something about Jesus, and that is his claim of being God. Right? He is the Almighty. And in verse number 11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. No one before him, (laughs) no one after him. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then he says, what you see right in a book. He's talking to John now, the Apostle John. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus and Smyrna, whom we have considered. Pergamos, whom we are going to consider today. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then in verse 17. John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and death. And then, with each specific message to the seven churches, Jesus begins with something about himself before he delivers his praise or his commendations and then his condemnation so he has something to say about himself first so everything begins with the knowledge of God and proceeds from there in verse number one to the church of Ephesus he said these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks So we learn that he, his presence is in the church and with the church. And then in verse 8, with the church of Smyrna, he says, These things saith the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. And then we come to Pergamos. And he says to the church here, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. They were the compromising church. And he begins with a little identification and knowledge of himself to confront them. In the Matthew Henry commentary, it says this, Some have observed that in the several titles of Christ, which are prefixed to the several epistles, there is something suited to the state of those churches. As in that to Ephesus, what should be more proper to awaken and recover a drowsy and declining church than to hear Christ speaking as one that held the seven stars in his right hand and walked in the midst of the seven or in the midst of the golden candlesticks. And then he says, The church of Pergamos was infested with men of corrupt minds who did what they could to corrupt both the faith and manners of the church and Christ, being resolved to fight against them by the sword of his word, 
takes the title of him that hath the sharp sword with two edges. Of course, when we think about the two-edged sword in Scripture, we also think of what was said in chapter 1, when Jesus is being described, and it says that he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. He also will say here, momentarily to the church of Pergamos in verse number 16 when he calls them to repentance he also as he led off with he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword he says repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth of course when we, we understand that a sword is an offensive and defensive weapon it is used to defend against the attacks of the enemy, but it is also used to eliminate the enemy. And so Jesus describes himself here as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. In Revelation chapter 19, listen to this description of Jesus Christ. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And, in, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Well, that should also make us think of something else that the writer of Hebrews said. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, right? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, this is the power of Jesus Christ. This is the power of the word of God. The word which Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, uh, it is declared, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Therefore, it is with great confidence that Paul says, that the word of the Lord is profitable in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 when he writes, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture. Right, New Testament Christians? All scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why? Because the word is truth. 
Therefore, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prays to the Father and says, Sanctify them, talking about his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, we hear this promise, but we also hear this warning. That should also comfort us and strike us with fear. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. In other words, it will be effective. And shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. So the thing that we just read about Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. We can take comfort that Jesus is going to be victorious. But it should also strike fear in us. That he is going to execute the justice and the wrath of God upon all those who oppose him, and all those who will not submit and bow their knee before him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is why Jesus also said in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, Those who submit themselves, those who surrender themselves to the authority of God as it is revealed unto us in his word. Blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. What's the opposite of that? Cursed are those who do not hear it and keep it. This is why James warned us. In chapter 1 of his epistle, that we should put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. We are told that the helmet of salvation and the so- is the, that we are to take on the helmet of salvation and we are to take upon us the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul is describing the whole armor of God that we are to be clothed in as Christians. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Why? Because there is no substitute here. We are being called into we are being called to submission to the authority of God as He has revealed His will. Through his word. And so Paul tells the Thessalonians, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. Do we really know what the word that we're receiving is today? What it really is? Because we hear it all the time. That's your opinion. That's your truth. This is my truth. And all this. No, there's one truth. There's God's truth. If you have received the word of God, don't accept it as if it was the word of men, but accept it for what it really is the word of God. 
which is at work, Paul says, in you believers. Now, we know and understand we emphasize this, right? Um, But sometimes you can emphasize one thing and not mention another thing to your own destruction. Right? Isn't that true? And so we emphasize, and we need to keep proclaiming it. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. But we also need to emphasize just as strongly and just as loudly and just as fervently the words of Jesus in Matthew seven twenty four, who says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. In other words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but that faith not just hears, it does them. That's the purpose of faith. To do that which you have received. Or how about this? In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus told the Jews who believed on him. Notice, John is making a point here. Many times what you will find is this distinction between believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, or sometimes it just references Jews, right? But John says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed on him, So these are believing Jews, and this is Jesus' words to those who have believed on him. And he says, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Paul said it this way. When he's writing to the Philippians, and he's instructing them, do all things without grumbling and complaining and murmuring. And then he's telling them to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you, you shine as lights to the world. And then Paul says this, holding fast... To the faithful word, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, if you don't hold to the word, Paul says, all my efforts were in vain. See, Jesus is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He is the word of God. He was the word that was made flesh. But he is the word of God. We see the word of God at work in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, God spoke, and the word caused everything to exist that exists. The absolute almighty power of Jesus Christ is the one who is speaking here. 
He is the one who is speaking to the church. He's the one who is going to rule with a rod of iron by the two-edged sword that he possesses. He's the one who is going to execute the justice and wrath of God. And he is the one who is speaking here. So when we hear this aspect about the word, being obedient to the word, when we say that we are called to be obedient to the word, you know that's another way of saying we are called to be obedient to Christ. It's the same thing. There's no distinction in what we're saying. And it is that Jesus Christ who is the one who has spoken. This resurrected Christ here in Revelation that is going to rule over all things. So that should get this compromising church's attention, don't you think? The church here in Pergamos or the compromising church today in 2024 here in the West. Now let's notice the message. Begins in verse number 13, and it's very similar to what we've read before, right? Jesus begins, I know your works and your labor and your patience. So he knows their works. This is what was said uh, concerning uh, the church in Smyrna. He knows their works. We find this all throughout the New Testament as well. Paul making mention of the Thessalonians in, their, in his prayers and remembering without ceasing their work of faith. Not their mystical nothingness of faith, but their work of faith. And so Paul tells the Colossians that he doesn't cease to pray for them. And what's he praying? Well, in Colossians 1, 9 through 11, he's praying this, that, you would be, that they would be fruitful in every, in every good work. That they would have fruit. Whatever good works there are, that they would have fruit in it. So Jesus says, I know your works. Just as the writer of Hebrews says, God's not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. So he says, I know your works, and he knows where they dwell. And where is it that they dwell? This is interesting, right? Where Satan's throne is. That's where they dwell. And then later, he talks about here where Satan dwells was the martyr Antipas. But he says, I know where you dwell. If you've noticed, there's this satanic theme that we find here throughout the book of Revelation, right? The whole book. But here, even in the message to the churches. So Jesus tells uh, the church of Smyrna, uh, gives them, you know, he says, I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Later on, in verse 24, as we are uh, dealing with Thyatira, he will say, 
that um, as he speaks unto them, he says there's many that don't have this doctrine which have not known the depths of Satan. And then in Revelation 3, 9, talks about those who he will make the synagogue of Satan. John Gill says this, says Pergamos, it was a Greek city, and he said it was a city that was very much given to idolatry. I started trying to read it, hoping I could communicate this to you. Oh my goodness, you can't believe all the pagan temples. Half of, well, more than half of them, I can't even pronounce the names of. Pagan temples were rampant here in Pergamos, which is why John Gill says very much. I mean, because let's face it, during the first century, you talk about any, any city in the Greek, Greco-Roman world of that time, basically every city was a pagan city, right? But he says this was a very much a pagan city. As a matter of fact, they even had a temple that deified the serpent, which is interesting with the symbolic language in the book of Revelation, right? They were very much given to idolatry. And so John Gill says this, Here Satan reigned while it was pagan. It's not just that these people lean a certain way. No, they were given over to paganism. This was a central foothold of paganism in that day and time. Matthew Henry's commentary says, This people dwelt where Satan's seat was, where he kept his court. His circuit is throughout the world. His seat is in some places that are infamous for wickedness, error, and cruelty. And this was such a place. Some believe that the Roman governor in this city was the most violent enemy of Christians during that time. And therefore, it was the seat of persecution. And therefore, it was Satan's seat. Literally, Satan's seat is Satan's throne. It's where he is reigning. He has dominion. So this church was existing in a culture where it is described as the dominion of Satan. So, his government and his law and his will and his way was ruling and reigning over that city. By stating that Satan dwells and reigns from Pergamos, Jesus Christ is explaining the origin of the evils that the church faces, which was idolatry and sexual immorality. And we'll say more on that in a second. And then he also knows their faithfulness, how that they're holding fast. And we've got to speed it up here. And also how that they're holding to Christ's name. They wasn't denying Christ in the midst of that very wicked city. And then he says, and they do not deny the faith, which is some kind of 
commendation, right? I mean, in the midst of the opposition and in the midst of the very wicked culture that they were living in, they had not denied Christ, his name. They were being faithful and steadfast. So much so that their members were even being faithful unto death, like the example that Jesus lists here. And he says, And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Very interesting. Antipas was, according to Christian history and tradition, ordained by John the Apostle. The very one to whom the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is being revealed to, to write and to send to the seven churches. He was the bishop of Pergamon during the reign of the Roman emperor. Now, I'll lose some of you here for a second, all right? And if you want to know more about it, talk to me at an appropriate time. It's an interesting conversation. Many people are always debating when the book of Revelation was written. Um, Some believe it was before 70 A.D., such as myself. Others believe it was 95 A.D. But there's one little problem. When the temple is being described in the book of Revelation, it describes it as if it is still standing. And if it was written in 95 A.D., it wasn't standing. But here's another interesting little tidbit for those of you that have ever looked into the situation. That Antipas was the bishop of Pergamon, or Pergamus, during the reign of the Roman emperor Nero. And he was martyred in 68 A.D. So, he was burned to death in a brazen, bull-shaped altar uh, by the local population there in Pergamos. So they were even faithful unto death. That's pretty commendable. I mean, do we think that we would pass with flying collars if we were facing this same kind of situation today? as the church here in Pergamos? Probably not. But yet, we look at all those things and we're like, boy, we would be feeling pretty good about ourselves. We'd be thinking we'd arrived, that we were the super Christians, right? Hadn't denied his name. Hadn't denied the faith. We're being steadfast and faithful, even unto death. Sounds pretty good, right? But notice verse 14. But he who has the two-edged sword says, Yeah, you're doing really well here and here and here, but I have a few things against you. Oh, he's not even saying it the way that we would say it. It's like, well, you know, 
we're all, I know you're all flesh and you're all sinners and, you know, there's some areas where it's just not quite what I believe is best for you. No, he says, I have a few things against you. We'd be like, what do you mean? We haven't denied the faith. We're being faithful unto death. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Well, now we have to know a little bit of something about Balaam, right? And we're not going to go too deep into it for sake of time. But Balaam was hired by Moab to curse Israel in Numbers chapter 22. The Lord would not allow him to curse Israel. And he actually prophesied blessings and good things to them, to the Israelites, in chapters 23 and 24. And so we read this, and we're like getting a little confused And it can cause confusion when you read the story there in those three chapters. However, additional scriptural accounts give us further information concerning Balaam. And to understand the the chapter that comes after that immediately in chapter 25 of the book of Numbers. When what we read there gives further light from other passages of scripture. Like in Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16 where it says, Behold... Talking about the Moabites, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Well, we also see here that it says that Balaam taught Balak, the king of Moab, how to trip up Israel. The Lord would not allow him to curse them. And so Balaam's like, I got another idea. I've got another idea. And here's the story in Numbers chapter 25. Listen. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. That's the modern version, nice way to say it in comparison to the King James, if you know what I mean. Um, Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, that's a false god, a pagan deity, And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord. Out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. That was the result of Balaam. He is the one who came up with the plan for Moab to seduce the children of Israel with idolatry and sexual immorality. And that is typically the way all Moabites, all the agents of Satan, the way Satan and his Demonic messengers trip up the people of God. The two main ways, idolatry and sexual immorality. We automatically start thinking about Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Not to worship anything other than the one true and the living God. But we should also remember the seriousness of this by what was communicated throughout scripture about destroying their altars and breaking down their sacred pillars and cutting down their wooden images. In other words, not to have any affinity with idolatry. There are many things that we could talk about in relation to that and even sexual immorality because we are told to avoid fornication, right? But here we have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, he says, which is to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Well, then he also mentions the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And we're not going to spend much time on this. This was mentioned earlier in the chapter uh, as well. Um, then we skipped over it because I was only going to mention it once because I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than this. And that is throughout the history of the church, most all commentators have came to the conclusion on the information that we've been able to discern from history that the Nicolaitans were also promoters of idolatry and sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, it was almost like a free love type of thing. You know, they were um, uh, sharing and sharing alike, as you might say. And so that's pretty much what the uh, commentators throughout Christendom have said, is this association also with idolatry and fornication. And if you notice... After he talks about those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who um, uh, teach people to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality, notice Jesus says, Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And one could make a case that... um, He's just adding them on to uh, that group onto 
the same uh, false doctrine that was mentioned earlier. But regardless, these are the two primary sins that, uh, that Satan uses to defile or corrupt the church. And then notice the call to repentance. Verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Once again, we can say Jesus is not playing. This is real, as they say. Um, Jesus is calling them to repentance. Calling his people to repentance. And we see this not only here in the churches, here in uh, the book of Revelation, but all throughout Scripture. Second Chronicles 7.14, what is it? It's a call to God's people to repent. What about all the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets? What was their job? To go to Israel, in Israel's sin, as they had turned away from God, and call upon his people to repent. During Lent, we really emphasize Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. What is that? That's a call to God's people to repent. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Therefore, having these promises, the promises that we have received through Christ, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What's he talking about? Repentance. And so here, Jesus tells them, repent or I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And then lastly, notice the promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. To him that overcomes, overcomes what? the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, the very thing he calls them on the carpet for and to repent of. In other words, he is he's telling them it, this promise is to those who overcome idolatry and sexual immorality. Matthew Henry's commentary says this, and I will close. So I'm telling you that, that I will close, hoping that you can focus on these last few words here. This is what Matthew Henry's commentary says about this promise. Says the hidden manna, the influences and comforts of the Spirit of Christ in communion with him, coming down from heaven into the soul from time to time for its support, to let it taste something how saints and angels live in heaven, in heaven. This is hidden from the rest of the world. The white stone with a new name engraven upon it. This stone, this white stone is absolution from the guilt of sin. Alluding to the ancient custom of giving a white stone to those acquitted on trial and a black stone to those condemned. 
A new name is the name of adoption. Adopted persons took the name of the family into which they were adopted. None can read the evidence of a man's adoption but himself. He cannot always read it, but if he persevere, in other words, overcome, if he perseveres, if he overcomes, he shall have both the evidence of sonship and the inheritance. Yes, there was corruption. There was problems. But Jesus is calling them to repent and overcome and to attain the promises through their overcoming Satan's throne, to overcome Satan's seat. Father, we definitely live in a day, an age where Satan dwells. We pray that you would help us to heed the message that was given to the church some 2,000 years ago. We're in a similar situation. Obviously, much worse than our situation. And yet here we stand today not faring as well as they did. So, Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, strengthen our faith, so that we might have that victory that is promised in the message to the church of Pergamos that we considered this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.